When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Beyond the Pearls podcast, based on the Morning Report series from Elsevier. This podcast has been adapted for audio in collaboration with series editor, Dr. Raj Dasgupta, as well as the volume editor for each book. Each episode features an in-depth case dissection format and aims to deliver practical, concise, and easy to digest information. And now, here's today's episode. So let's just go to, before we go to my, my, my 10 questions, like, so, how do you diagnose osteoporosis? So there's there's two different ways to, to diagnose someone with osteoporosis. And then a third way or a third avenue by which someone might qualify for osteoporotic treatment. And so, you know, okay. you could say maybe that is a diagnosis of osteoporosis or sure. you're just saying you're treating those people with the medication. So mm-hmm. the first way, like I said uh, earlier, is a clinical diagnosis of osteoporosis. And that would be... Mm-hmm in anybody who has suffered an osteoporotic fracture already. So someone who has had a fragility fracture in the past, someone who comes in with a Mm. hip fracture or a spine fracture, um, those are probably the two most common areas, but um, you could also see uh, uh, osteoporotic or fragility fractures in the the wrist, the distal uh, uh, forearm, Mm -hmm. um, the proximal humerus near the shoulder, Mm -hmm. um, and the ribs. Those would be kind of the most common areas. If someone has already had a fragility fracture in that area, mm-hmm. it actually does not matter what their bone density is. That person has a clinical diagnosis of osteoporosis, um, and that person most likely would benefit from medication going forward to try and reduce so their limits. risk. God, you get me so fired up all the time. So is that in real medicine, clinical medicine, how many endocrinologists, primary care, rheumatologists will accept a clinical diagnosis in the sense that will that cover medications based on the clinical diagnosis or do you really have to go on and get that DEXA, which you're going to be talking about soon. From a practical standpoint, um, most of those patients still should get a DEXA, um, not only because, as you alluded to, there might be insurance requirements where to get certain medications, uh, the insurance company might Mm -hmm. say, uh, I understand your diagnosis of clinical osteoporosis, but we are still going to require a bone density test Mm -hmm. to see where the bone density is. Um, But then also from a practical standpoint uh, and a management standpoint going forward, um, we use the bone density you know, for, for, for better or for worse, we use the bone density as our, our marker of treatment therapy, uh, for, for a lot of patients, we use changes in bone density. So is that um, number two, is that the second way to do correct, it? Then? Correct. Okay. But, um, but yes, uh, we, we would use changes in bone density to determine, you know, is a, is a treatment being effective or not to some extent. So, um, so you'd want to get a baseline in those patients, even if you've decided I'm going to treat this patient, no matter what the bone density shows, you're still probably going to get that bone density test so you have your baseline and bone density you know just is basically looking at the the bone in three main areas right there's hip Mm -hmm. there's 
wrist, mm -hmm. and where is the other one? The lumbar spine. Lumbar spine. Those are the three areas that, the, that we really focus on. Is that correct? So, and those are the three areas that we focus on. Um, one, because, yes, they are common areas to mm -hmm. see osteoporotic fractures, mm -hmm. but um, more importantly, just those are the areas that have been validated as correlating with fracture risk, right? Okay. That, that there is this relationship that the lower your bone density in uh, those three areas, generally speaking, the higher your risk of fracture. And that would be the air quote gold standard is, is the DEXA. The A, a DEXA uh, uh, using yeah, a, a two-dimensional dual uh, x-ray absorptiometry DEXA scan is the standard. Um, is it, uh, you know, is it going to be the standard forever? Maybe not. There might be something that will replace it because um, there certainly are limitations that come with it. But, um, but certainly in uh, uh, research studies and in mm -hmm. clinical practice, DEXA is sort of uh, what what we're using now you alluded to a third way mm -hmm. and I don't even know what the third way is <laughs> so I got to hear it from the horse's mouth what is the third way to diagnose so the so so Osteoporosis. the second way just to yeah close up <laughs> the gap there is you know if you yeah. get the DEXA and you fall below this arbitrary threshold of your bone density in one of the areas that's measured mm -hmm. then we would assume that if your bone density is low enough your risk of fracture is high enough that therefore you would benefit from medication mm -hmm. so the third way is basically if you say well I got the, the patients never had an osteoporotic fracture yet mm -hmm. um, and I want to prevent them from ever having a fracture if their mm -hmm. risk is high enough. Mm -hmm. Their bone density hasn't met this threshold um, uh, to, to classify them as high risk for fracture based purely on their bone density. Mm -hmm. um, that's number two. Number three would be, what if there are other factors mm -hmm. at play? Okay. Um, sort of the things you were alluding to. Um, uh, so family history, um, ethnicity, uh, one factor I alluded to earlier, which is age. Um, what if you take other factors into consideration and that either with or without uh, bone density, what if you then calculated a risk of fracture? And if you determine that their risk of fracture is above a certain threshold, yep. um, then you might say, well, even though their bone density doesn't reach the threshold, when I take into consideration these other factors, it, it increases my suspicion or, or my my. Uh, my estimated risk for them to have a fracture in the future. And so I do think this patient would benefit from pharmacotherapy, from drug therapy. Okay, um, I see where this is going. So I was assuming mm -hmm. that you were talking about a blood test or a urine test or something like that. You were referring to a, a calculated score, and I believe you're talking about the FRAX score, right? So yeah, more generally, I'm referring to any risk assessment model. Okay. Um, there's multiple different risk assessment models that yeah. have been uh, that have been constructed and, yeah. and calculated out there for this purpose. Yeah. Um, in the United States, at least, and in, in many countries around the world, the uh, risk assessment model that is used most frequently is, as you said, the FRAX tool. Yeah. Yes. And now, you know what? Does, I mean, I'm just I just made this up. I mean, my, my wife, who's a rheumatologist, one time got a consult. If someone ordered some blood work about mm -hmm. osteoporosis and, you know, we both kind of shook our heads a little bit. Mm -hmm. Is there any blood work that people commonly order for osteoporosis out there? Or is that something that's kind of, you know, maybe it's still in the more research phase? You know what I mean? Anything like that? So uh, I think from a, uh, a an assessment of osteoporosis standpoint. Yeah. So there's definitely some lab testing that should be ordered in every patient that you are diagnosing with osteoporosis mm -hmm. or that you are saying, oh, this person is high risk for fracture, um, either because they've already had a fracture or because their bone density is low mm -hmm. or because 
using a risk assessment model, their risk mm -hmm. of fracture is high. You should do some blood testing to look for reversible causes, things that sure. you could that you could intervene. And these are are secondary causes of of either bone loss and or increased risk of fracture that you could. Uh, fix that you could do something. So like, like right? a thyroid and parathyroid. But what about a bone? Is there a bone marker of osteoporosis out there? So yeah, yeah, you're referring to to markers of bone turnover. Yeah, does anyone bone, order bone those? turnover markers, BTMs? Um, BTMs. Yeah, so, it sounds like I get ordered from a deli or something. Yeah, I know. Yeah, delicious. So <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, yeah. yes, there are people who order them, and and they're. Do you order them? Uh, in some patients. Really? Yes. What um, are some? I'm just now. I'm, I know I'm going to ask you. What sure, are sure. Do you do them? in the pre-diagnosis phase or during the treatment phase? I think probably the best um, uh, proposed uh, use of these bone turnover mm -hmm. markers is to help with um, monitoring of treatment or okay. monitoring of efficacy of certain types of treatments. Interesting. Um, so there's there's two different uh, sort of types of, of bone turnover markers. There's yeah. um, markers of bone formation. So these would be the builders, uh, the, builders the construction <laughs> crew, the yeah. osteoblasts. So uh -huh. we would say that the higher these levels, yep. the more uh, action of the osteoblast mm -hmm. we assume there are. Mm -hmm. And then we have uh, markers of bone resorption. So these mm -hmm. would be uh, uh, the lower they are, the more that the the uh, the the resorption is being inhibited. Okay. Um, and so, you know, I think one way that these that these uh, have been proposed mm -hmm. as being used, mm -hmm. um, and and one way that a lot of people do use them, and I use them from time to time, mm -hmm. is if you're putting a patient on a therapy that you want the the therapy to decrease bone resorption, right? To calm down the demolition crew. Okay. So you would measure their level before you start the treatment, and then you'd measure the level mm. sometime after you start treatment. And you'd wanna see, um, is this medication uh, getting into the patient's body effectively? Because with some of these medications um, that treat osteoporosis, absorption uh, mm -hmm. from the gastrointestinal tract mm -hmm. is a big problem. Um, and so uh, you wanna see, is, is the medication actually getting into the patient's body and doing what we want it to do. Is this going to be used in junction combined with that DEXA? Or absolutely, it is I, combined I, with the next. Cur right? Currently, okay. um, you know, most uh, most guideline, all guidelines, and, and most mm -hmm. you know, kind of recommendations out there would be that the DEXA is something you're going to get in everybody. Um, and again, it's it's an imperfect tool, but mm -hmm. I think it it's probably um, the best that we have for right now. Mm -hmm. The bone turnover markers would be something you might do in addition to the bone density. Gotcha. Test. Wow, dude, I hope everyone out there became a lot smarter. That was, the, <laughs> that was the strongest beginning for osteoporosis. So now this is the patient that comes to see you if they're lucky enough. You're, you're quite busy. You know what I mean? Uh, so here are some questions I want them to ask you or any of your doctors or healthcare providers that have that know you have osteoporosis. So I think this is a, a very good one for the audience. Are there ways to keep my osteoporosis from getting worse? Uh, absolutely. So uh, I, patients ask me that all the time, and and uh, uh, it's part of what I counsel patients on all the time. So the first things to think about would be uh, what are the things that that anyone can do and do, doesn't involve any medication. No medication. Right? For this um, time, yeah. So usually, what I tell patients is um, we want to make sure number one that they're getting enough calcium. Okay. Um, calcium is sort of the raw uh, material, the raw building block that we do that we that our bones use for regular maintenance. Mm -hmm. Um, what I usually tell patients yeah. is to aim for approximately 
1,200 milligrams or 1,200 milligrams of elemental calcium okay. um, in total per day. So when I say in total, I'm talking about calcium you get from foods you eat, calcium you get from beverages you drink, and calcium you get from supplements that you take. Okay. Um, so that does not mean you have to take 1,200 milligrams of calcium supplement. Um, it means that all of it added together should add up to about 1,200 milligrams. Um, we don't want people coming in too far below this, but we also don't need or want people to go uh, significantly above that either. There, in, in, in the past, people have tried to say, well, if I just shove enough calcium into this person, then maybe it's going to help their bones. And we know that there, um, there can be detriment that comes along with taking too much calcium so as well. So let me ask you this. I'm just making this up as I go along. Yeah. I don't, you know, when you give supplemental calcium, and many people are on supplemental sure, calcium. Sure, sure. I don't usually go around ordering a follow-up basic metabolic panel to see what their calcium is. Do you do that? Because it's not easy to overdose on calcium unless you're just kind of a moron, right? Co correct. Uh, well, at least unless you're given bad uh, guidance, I guess, but um, or you're just trying to turn into a so you piece don't of, want it. turn into a piece of chalk or something. But, yeah, exactly. um, but but no, uh, blood calcium levels don't correlate very well with okay. calcium intake unless people are on one extreme end of the spectrum or the other. Okay. Um, our body is very, very good at maintaining our calcium levels in the normal range most of the time, regardless of how much calcium we're getting. Right. But if someone has a, a slight or a more moderate deficiency of calcium um, in their blood, uh, or excuse me, in their body, um, their intake, then the assumption is that basically their body is is stealing or leaching calcium from the bones to prop up the calcium in the blood. So calcium levels in the blood are not a good indicator of calcium intake. And you can also look at it this way. If you're affecting the calcium levels in the blood, then you're screwed. Sure. Because right? you already are beyond the range of auto-regulation. So by that time, it, you're either really deficient or have too much in you. Right. I love the seeds. That was a great question. Uh, it was a great question. Yeah, I don't know how that came from, you know. <laughs> but uh, what about, you know, I'm going to ask it, vitamin D. Vitamin D. So um, I also recommend making sure patients get an adequate amount of vitamin D. Now with vitamin D, it's a little trickier in terms of the right amount. Um, uh, what I usually advise my patients is I think we should get a vitamin D level checked. Um, if your vitamin D level is at goal, which different people use different goals, I use a vitamin D uh, level or a vitamin D goal of 30 to 50. Um, if my patient is already at goal between 30 to 50, then I say, whatever you're doing now, whether that's no supplementation or a little bit of supplementation, if whatever amount you're taking now is fine, stick with it. Mm -hmm. If their level is too low, I tell them, you either need to start a vitamin D supplement if you're not taking one, or you need to increase your dose if you're already taking one. If their level is over 50, if it's only a little bit over 50, I might just kind of leave them on it. Mm -hmm. um, if they're getting up into the, the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, um, that is definitely a level that, that I think we don't really see any increased benefit. And there might be a slight increased risk, um, specifically of, uh, of kidney stones. Mm -hmm. And so I'll usually advise my patients to actually ratchet down their vitamin D supplementation a little bit. So let me ask you, you know, for the dosing, mm -hmm. you know, I'll tell you what I take. Everyone, I take vitamin D. My vitamin D level was low. Okay. You know, yep. Dr. Raj, if you haven't met me, I'm a little brown in color. So I'm not a big fan of the sun. You right. know? So yeah. maybe, maybe that's the reason. Sure, sure. Know? But I take 2,000 units mm -hmm. daily, you know. So if, you, if you're a woman or this or that, do you put a calculator to get the exact dosing or you just do 2,000 across the board? I usually, if, if somebody is not taking a supplement to start with, mm -hmm. um, and I, I 
think 2,000 units is a good starting point because um, I've seen patients who are taking less than that, who um, are not reaching their goals, who are still too low, and Mm -hmm. I've had to increase them. I haven't seen too many people who have been on 2,000 units a day um, and who need to be on higher doses than that, with the exception of patients who have known uh, malabsorption issues, so intestinal issues. uh, They don't absorb, you know, maybe several different uh, uh, nutrients or minerals, Mm -hmm. uh, vitamins, things like that. They might need significantly higher doses. But for your your sort of standard patient who who doesn't seem to have a major malabsorption issue or Mm -hmm. something like that, um, I haven't seen too many patients who need uh, more than 2,000 units a day. That's good. And I, I love this question right here I'm coming up with. You know, lately, have you been finding a lot of patients ask you about these supposed benefits of vitamin D? Because vitamin D is hot, right? And especially during the COVID time, you know, yeah. I'm, I'm your favorite pulmonary critical oh, care doctor. Of course, yeah. There was a time where, hey, if you don't want COVID, you better get your vitamin D going. Right. Or, hey, if you don't want to have Alzheimer's, you need vitamin D, you sure, a sure. heart attack. Yeah. I mean, I know you're a nice guy. You just kind of nod your head like, yep, you're right, buddy. Or... <laughs> What do you think about all this hype hoop about hoopla about vitamin D? Um, I think that you know uh, we we probably are giving vitamin D in some respects maybe a little more credit than it deserves, um, but at the same time I don't think there's a lot of harm to come from it as long sure. as people aren't taking really super high excessively high doses. Um, you know as far as the the, the COVID stuff and the and the uh, the sort of uh, immune immunologic benefits, yep. I would probably defer to you know someone uh, with with more knowledge in that field. But again, I can't really think of a reason why it would be a bad thing. Um, uh, there was, uh, you know, a recent large study in uh, in an older population where they just sort of, uh, without measuring baseline vitamin D levels, yeah. they put large uh, a large group of people on uh, either 2,000 units of vitamin D or, or placebo and followed them uh, mainly for, for skeletal outcomes, you know, osteoporosis yeah. and fractures. But we're looking at a wide variety of different outcomes, and they basically saw no difference. So, I can imagine. Um, so, you know, I, I think vitamin D is... Uh, we, we, we might give it more credit than it deserves. I still think, you know, do I tell my patients that, especially my patients with osteoporosis, that I want them to get enough of it? Absolutely. Um, but, but do I think it is the, uh, the cure of all, uh, of all maladies? You know, probably not. <laughs> no. Thank you for listening to the Beyond the Pearls podcast from Inside the Boards. This podcast is executive produced by Christopher Brightigan and Dr. Patrick Beeman. This podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not medical advice. Ars longa, vita brevis.